All right, morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. We're going to open God's Word together. So if you would turn to the Old Testament book of Esther, which might be hard to find. So let me just give you some um, traveling instructions. You can open to the middle of your Bible. Generally, that's going to give you Psalms. Turn left, Job, and then there you are, Esther. Um, So we're starting a new series here this morning, walking through the book of Esther uh, we'll be in this for, for several weeks, about eight weeks probably, uh, and we'll just take it one chapter at a time, retelling this story, thinking about its implications for our lives. I hope our last uh, series as we looked at the Gospels was encouraging to us uh, in our faith. Uh, but God has given us a book full of 66 books of the Bible that have uh, massive Uh, a truckload of edification value for our lives as followers of Jesus. And I hope we're gonna see uh, some fresh stuff here in the Old Testament story of Esther. So if you're there, Esther chapter one, I'm gonna begin by reading this entire chapter to us and then we'll dive in and, and get to work. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to the royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsana, and Memucan. 
They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command. He's talking in the third person. That never goes well. Uh, To obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs. Mimikin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom so all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal and he followed Mimikin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So I've entitled this message, Redemptive Laughter. And by the time we're done, I hope we'll all see what I mean there. The laughter that God calls his people to, the laughter that we're considering here this morning is a kind of interesting combination of two things. It's a combination of one, genuine joy in the rescue of God, and two, sanctified amusement at the folly of human pride. And that second one might strike us as odd, um, but, but the reality is the book of Esther is written intentionally as satire. So satire, what is satire? Satire is comedy with an edge. It's, it's comedy that's intended to expose foolishness. It's, it's intended to expose pride and corruption. So in, in a sense, the book of Esther is kind of like, are you familiar with the folk tale of the emperor's new clothes? The story of the emperor's new clothes, right, where the, the emperor is told by swindlers that we can make you fabrics, clothes that are so soft, it's like you're not even wearing clothes. And, and a matter of fact, they're, they're so magical. They actually have magical properties so that only fools can't see the clothes. But all the wise can see the clothes. And so he's like, I gotta have these clothes, right, in the folk tale. So they go over to their you know, they go start weaving fabrics. There's actually nothing there, right? And they're weaving the fabrics and they put the emperor in the clothes and they parade him through the town and everybody's embarrassed to say the emperor has no clothes because only fools don't see the clothes and nobody wants to own the fact that, that they're a fool except one child points and he says, the emperor is naked. And then everybody busts out laughing, and that's why the adage comes down through time after that story was told that the emperor has no clothes. And in a way, that's the book of Esther. 
The emperor has no clothes. There's a kind of redemptive satire laughter at the kingdom and powers of this world. So we're going to come back to the satire in just a moment. But, but first, let's just think about how we read Esther. So how we read Esther, let's just take in the big picture. And we'll start here. It's a story. It's a true story. So this isn't a folk tale, this isn't a a myth or a fable, it's an actual story. It really happened like this. It's a true story, it's an awesome story, but, but you can tell a true story and an awesome story in a really bland and not compelling kind of way. So this week, for example, I just, um, I was curious, so I went and did a search on how to review a great story in a really terrible way, and here's... Here's a movie review that summarized Lord of the Rings. Group spends nine hours returning jewelry. Uh, that's a great way to ruin a story with six words, right? The, the great story of Lord of the Rings is just about people trying to get jewelry back to where it belongs, right? This, so th- but this is a true story and an awesome story, and it's told in a really compelling way, not a bland way, a compelling way. There's a master storyteller uh, writing these words down for us. So you've got this nasty villain. Every great story's got a nasty villain, and Haman is a nasty villain, and we're going to meet him in chapter three. Every great story has a hero. This one's got a hero and a heroine. So you've got the wisdom of Mordecai and you've got the courage of Esther. You've got power in chapter one here on an immense scale. You've got a god emperor named Ahasuerus who history tells us it comes down through history as Xerxes. So this is the same guy that would march on Thermopylae against the 300 famous Spartans. This is that Xerxes. Esther is going to end up marrying that guy, right? It's, it's an amazing story. So you got villains, you got heroes, you got a, basically a god emperor, you got a setting which is just this tricked out winter palace in Susa of the king of the world. And then you, you don't just have amazing and interesting characters and, and figures and, and setting, but conflict. This is not, you know, star-crossed lovers in some predictable story. The, the conflict that's brewing underneath this is a holocaust. It is a pending extermination of the entire race of the Jews. So it's a true story. Next, it's a story that launched a feast. It's a story that launched a feast. And, and here's where occasionally when we're reading through a book of the Bible, that book of the Bible tells you why that book is here. It tells you that there's a, a purpose for, for these words being written in this book. So the author of this book of Esther, who wrote this down under divine inspiration, wanted God's people to do something with this story. And we pick that up. If you just hold your place here, flip over to Esther chapter 9, and I want you to see it with me. What were God's people supposed to do in light of what God had done in saving them? So we're fast forwarding through the whole story. A lot of stuff has happened. I'm not going to give all the spoilers. Uh, Mordecai, chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events of what happened and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far, He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year 
because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun as Mordecai had written them to do. And the Feast of Purim is still celebrated all these centuries later by the Jewish people. So there was a purpose. This was a story that launched a, an annual feast called the Feast of Purim that still is in motion, right? So Old Testament feasts, they weren't just religious people getting together uh, to have a lot of fun. They, they weren't just, you know, potluck. <laughs> um, Old Testament feasts were theology set to music. It was theology with a DJ. It was theology with a feast, right? So what, what does this feast do? What is it saying? The feast reinforces a message for the faithful. The feast reinforces a message for the faithful. So what is the message? The message is that this story is about a God who has options, that this story is about a God of surprising reversals, that this is a story about the transience of every earthly power in this world, not just the powers we scorn, but the powers we're tempted to trust. That's underneath, that's brewing underneath every chapter of Esther, right? It resets the gaze of God's people to what's happening above earthly kingdoms at the hand of God. It is, it is God's hand, not in the fireworks of miracle like you see in the book of Exodus. It is God's hand in quiet providence. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, well-known preacher last century, he said providence is, is God's hand in the glove of history, and that's, that's Esther. It's God's hand in the glove of ordinary history. If we read Esther right, Esther is that the message of this book is basically going to tell us the same thing that the Apostle Paul would tell uh, Christians in Philippi, where he would say, remember, your citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's the kingdom to which you ultimately Belong. So Mordecai said in chapter 9, verse 20, mark a day on the calendar, I'll give you the day. It's the 14th day of the month of Adar, and it'll lead over into the 15th day of the month of Adar. Because, and do it on that day, because on the 14th day of the month of Adar, Haman, the world's biggest clown, thought he could overturn the purposes of God. And that's where there's a kind of satire. There's some teeth in it. Celebrate the day that Haman overplayed his hand. The Feast of Purim says to God's people in every age, God is sovereign even when life is at its worst. It says rejoice even when it looks like the gods of this world are winning. The Feast of Purim allowed God's Old Testament people a, a physical, living color context in which they could say, Lord, you have prepared a table for us even in the presence of our enemies. Our cup is overflowing, even here in exile. Which, by the way, um, the happy ending in the book of Esther is Haman doesn't wipe them out. It's not that we're not under exile anymore. They're still under exile. You know, this, Xerxes comes to power, and it says in the beginning of our text, this is the third year of Xerxes' reign. He's got another 17 coming. And then after him, 
his son Artaxerxes takes over and rules for 40 years, right? So we're not out of exile. We're still under the thumb of Persian emperors. So this is how we read Esther. Let's take a few minutes to let Esther read the world. How Esther, the book, reads the world. And and here's where the, the idea of redemptive laughter kicks in, that this is holy satire. This is This is comedy that exposes foolishness and corruption. So the opening chapter, what did you see? As I was reading the text, hopefully you were seeing, there's there's irony kind of dripping all over this chapter. So you you got the pomp pomp and circumstance of the king of the world, and he is pulling out all the stops. Xerxes is showing everybody all the things that he owns. He is flexing his power. He is saying, I got 127 provinces. Find somebody in the world who's got more real estate than I do. 127 provinces that run from India, Pakistan, all the way over to Egypt, Libya, down to Sudan. It's all mine. Up to Bulgaria, it's all mine. Two million square miles of real estate, and it all belongs to me. And look, in one sense, two million square miles of real estate might not impress us because the United States is three million plus square miles of... I read that last night. I wouldn't know that, but... Right, so in one sense, you're like, oh, okay, there are other kingdoms that have had that amount of real estate, but this is the entire known world. Some scholars approximate that over half the global population was under Xerxes. This is a man with impossibly great power. In verse four, you see the language that's used where he's parading the language there, the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. He doesn't want your vote, he wants your worship. That's the kind of leader this man is, right? And and so as our storyteller is walking us through the palace, what's going on? Your head is on a swivel. He's turning you, the storyteller's turning your head on a swivel in all directions and everywhere you look, your eyes are popping. Everywhere you look, your jaw is dropping. It's just amazing couches, amazing furniture, amazing floors we're walking on, amazing wine, right? The everything, it's, it's supposed to be saying to you, you come away from this and you're saying, There's no palace like Xerxes' palace. There's no garden like Xerxes' garden. There's no party like a Xerxes' party. There's no one like the Lord. (laughs) There's no one like Xerxes. That's that's what he wants them to feel, right? And And then look at verse 10. Speaking of Xerxes' wine, on the seventh day when the king was feeling good from the wine. So that's a euphemism for what? He's, uh, yeah, he's had one too many. He is sauced. And, and this is basically a frat party. The girls are somewhere else. All the guys are up in here. This is a keg party. This is a frat party. And all the boys are well-oiled by now. It's, we're seven days into this. The wine's been flowing. Drink as much as you want. They'll serve you everything that you want from the emperor's bar. Everybody's oiled up by now. And Xerxes says probably with a slur in his voice, guys, you've seen my gorgeous house. You've seen my gorgeous dishware and curtains, but I've saved the best for last because I want you to see my gorgeous wife. And he snaps his finger, seven guys run out the door to go get Vashti. 
and he commands Vashti to come into the room and that's when the music stops. <laughs> because Vashti does what? She says no, <laughs> which is absolutely unthinkable. Vashti said no, this is a massive problem. The record player scratches right here and the satire begins because for all his wealth, we've been living in and turning our head in all directions from the master storyteller. For all his wealth and all of his power and the whole world bends its ear when this guy starts talking, but this God emperor for the life of him can't get his wife into the room. And you can hear the snickers of God's people. You can imagine them on the Feast of Purim as they would read this story. The people are snickering. Why? Because what it says next, verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and the king became furious and his anger burned within him. And there again, you can imagine the children just laughing, kind of these snickers breaking out because the king's so mad. He's so powerful, but he's so frustrated. And many commentators will point out that the king's request in this case is beneath her dignity, that, that the custom of Persia would have been that you do this sort of thing in front of all the guys if you're having a party and everybody's inebriated. You bring out one of your concubines. You don't ask the queen. You don't parade her in front of the guys like, like she's one of your harem. This is unthinkable, which is probably why Queen Vashti does the unthinkable and says, no, I'm not doing that. And the message is getting through, isn't it? As we read it, it's not just for them, it's for us. And it's something like this. Don't be impressed by the world's power. Don't be impressed by the world's power. Don't be taken in. Don't be assimilated by a world that can't discern the difference between nobility and folly between glory and shame, that can't discern the difference between the path of wisdom and the lure of pleasure. This text, this story is meant to meddle with us, with our definition of the good life. We're sucking the secondhand smoke of a culture that worships greatness and power. And the story of Esther is saying, what power do you look up to the most? Or is your gaze set on what true nobility and true greatness really is. The, the satire continues because Queen Vashti says no. And so now what? Look at verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understand the times for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice about a marital squabble, right? So he's calling a legislative session because his wife won't walk into the room, right? And these are, the, these are the big dogs, right? Verse 15, the highest paid people in the kingdom, the seven highest positions in the kingdom, these are Persia's tax dollars at work. This is the most expensive marriage counseling session in the history of the world. He's bringing in all the big dogs and he's saying, what do I do about Vashti? <laughs> you see the humor. And what do they say? It just gets better. Verse 17, the queen's action 
will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. So what are they trying to do? They're trying to quell the press. What we don't want is something trending on social media. You know, hashtag Vashti said no. That, that is not something that's gonna be a good look for the kingdom. It's gonna be bad for all the husbands everywhere in your two million square miles of real estate. It's gonna be bad news for husbands all over the world. And so the king is saying, so, so what do I do? Which is, there's more satire there because here in the first chapter, you've got all this opulence and, and, and wealth that's paraded before our eyes. But the king in chapter one only does what other people tell him to do. And the one command he gives is ignored. Right? It's just dripping with irony. So go back to that cabinet meeting. Here's what we need to do, they say. Uh, make a royal decree. This is going to serve her right. Make a royal decree that Vashti cannot come into your presence. And the irony is what? She doesn't want to, or she'd be here right now. That is not punishment. She chose to not walk in when you told her to. That's not punishment. You want to whisper in their ears and just say, guys, pull it together. This is embarrassing. It's like the king and the seven dwarfs. It's not, it's not the king and his seven wise men. There's satire here. She'll be deposed as queen. Okay. So then what do they say? Write a law. So write legislation. Tonight, write legislation that orders all women to do a better job of honoring their husbands because punishable offenses always bring spouses together, right? Right? It's irony. They say, verse, verse 20 through 22, they say, write a law, send it to all the 120 provinces, translate it into the, all the languages. Now look, again, here, five minutes ago they said, if word of what Vashti has done gets out, it's going to negatively influence everybody in the empire. And now they're saying, send it out to everybody. Let's tell everybody in the empire what Vashti has done. They had a legendary mail system. The Persian empire was known around the world and in world history for having legendary technology for getting the word out. And they used their legendary technology to say, Vashti said no. <laughs> the book of Esther is written to create redemptive laughter. It's written to the believing community to say to them, things aren't what they seem. God is in control. God is working his hand invisibly at work in history. Christian friend, don't confuse the quiet work of God with the absence of God. Don't confuse the quiet working of God with the absence of God. You know, one of the most interesting features of the book of Esther, we haven't discussed it yet, and it's not the heroes that are present, and it's not the setting and the conflict, it's what's missing from the book of Esther. You know what's missing from the book of Esther? God. The name God never occurs in this book in the Bible. Right, so this irony shot through this story. The kingdom 
It's basically saying to God's people then and now, the kingdom that you see with the naked eye is a sham kingdom, and the kingdom you don't see is quietly and powerfully working its purposes in the world. It's asking God's people, which kingdom has your hopes? Which kingdom has your heart? If we read Esther in the light of the rest of the Bible, you know what we discover? That there are two elaborately decorated buildings that are described in detail in the Bible. One is the palace of Xerxes and the other is the temple of God. You have two exquisite gardens that are described in the Bible. One is the garden of Xerxes, the other is the garden of Eden. You have two banquets where a king calls all the way to the ends of his kingdom and invites people, the empire, to stream into this banquet, into the imperial city for a feast. One is the drunken banquet of a human overlord who's ultimately powerless, and the other is the wedding feast of the king of glory. What's it shouting? It's shouting, the world's kingdoms are a parody It's a sham kingdom. They claim a glory they do not possess. They're cardboard cutouts. They're empty suits. It's hollow. There's nothing inside. It's going nowhere. It's transient. It's chaff that the wind drives away. Right, the telltale marker of God's kingdom is its glory is hidden from the eyes of those who worship power. That's the telltale sign of the kingdom of God. The real king comes and his glory is hidden from the eyes of the proud, right? They walk right past him. It says he had no outward beauty or glory that would make people pull up alongside him and say, this guy's going somewhere. No, where he's going is a cross, and that's where his glory shines with the greatest brightness. That's one, why one modern theologian calls the cross the blazing center of the glory of God. His glory shines out from the cross. This is the king. This king, guess what he did? He shed on purpose his royal garments and he hung naked before the world so that he could bury your shame if you trust in him. So that all who believe, he wraps us in his garments of righteousness forever. We turn from self-rule. We turn from drinking at the fountain of the pleasures of this world. And we put our trust in the one king who really reigns. That's salvation. That's a Christian gospel. Friend, believe it this morning. Repent and believe it this morning. to gladly embrace his rule over us, what happens? We become not just guests at the banquet of the ages. (laughs) Hosts, royal sons and daughters. We get to go and do the welcoming. We get to go and pass out the invites to the edge of the world. Come, come into the banquet feast of the great king of all the earth. Come by trusting in Jesus. Come by bending your knee at Calvary's cross. Don't confuse the quiet work of God with the absence of God. And finally, don't lose your sense of humor. (laughs) 
Don't lose your sense of humor. I was, um, I was curious again, and I did a search for wise sayings, adages, proverbs uh, about laughter. Here's one of them. This is a Tunisian proverb. How lovely is the sun after rain, and how lovely is laughter after sorrow. Here's another one. Laughter is the sun that drives winter from the human face. Isn't that beautiful? Here's, here's another one. This one's rich. This one is about lady wisdom, and it's found in the word of God. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Why is this woman laughing at the uncertainty of the future. She's laughing, and that laughter grows out of a conviction that the future belongs to the Lord, not the king, not any of the powers of this world. The future, my future, belongs to the Lord. And it may be very hard, but there's always reason to hope. And so that's what redemptive laughter ultimately is. I heard something fun learned something really fun about the Feast of Purim this week, that every year it, it continues to be celebrated by the Jews all around the world. And in preparation for the feast, this has gone on for centuries, in preparation for the Feast of Purim, coming up to the 14th day of the month of Adar, they make things. They make certain food, baked goods, they make crafts. So they make dumplings and they hide the meat inside to remind them that God isn't named in the book of Esther, but he's hiding inside. He's underneath the surface. They, they would make um, triangular cookies and they would, call, they would call them in Hebrew, they would call them Haman's ears because legend has it, Haman had funny shaped ears. So they would gather together and they would eat these triangular shaped cookies. They would make homemade rattles that they called groggers in Yiddish. It was called groggers. So like today, for example, you might make it by just putting uh, paper clips in a plastic cup and putting tape on the top and you shake it and it just makes this rattling sound. And when they would gather together for the Feast of Purim, all the people, the men, women, and the children, they would all gather together. And the first thing that happens on the 14th day of the month of Adar is this story is read in its entire, the entire book of Esther, it's read from a scroll. And you know what happens? Every time they say the name Haman, all the children rattle their rattles and all the adults boo and hiss. It's redemptive laughter. When the powers of this world flex their muscles over the persecuted people of God, what does Psalm 2 permit us to hear? He, God, sits in the heavens and laughs. Psalm 126 is a psalm about yearning for the day when God's kingdom would break in, would shine in its fullness on God's people. And you know what Psalm 126 says? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so this is the day when everything, everything comes full circle. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Look at the first impact. Then our mouth was filled with what? Laughter. <laughs> and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. 
What keeps us from becoming the crankiest people on earth? (laughs) There are a lot of cranky Christians out there right now, right? What keeps us from being cranky Christians? Confidence that above all earthly power is the unstoppable purpose of God. That's why you can laugh at the days to come. The, the disciples, they come to Jesus and, um, and Jesus talks about two different kinds of joy and he puts one of them above the other one. He doesn't erase it, but he puts one of them above the other and he, he says, um, look, if you're gonna rejoice, don't rejoice that evil powers have fallen. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Joy isn't just a better look for Christians than crankiness. Joy is instructive for our faith. That's what Esther, the book, as a whole, is saying. Take this joy thing seriously.